Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. We're in Hebrews chapter 10 today. If you brought your Bible to church like a good Christian should. Toward the end, if you're new to the Bible, Hebrews chapter 10, a couple things about this book before we read. A few maybe familiar verses, at least one of them will be familiar to church folks. And some people are gonna get scared who know that verse, but you're all right because you're here today. We'll be talking about the others. But um, Hebrews is an interesting book, mainly to, well, unfortunately to many because people seem to be absorbed with not knowing who wrote it. If you've been in church more than about two months and you heard Hebrews, you hear some preachers try to nail down who it was. Well, I'm going to fix that as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't matter if it's the Word of God. It's inspired by Him, and it's good for us. So we're going to read it and um, study it and apply it to our life. I've got opinions, but they don't matter. But it's the Word of God. Hebrews is written by somebody to somebody. And the title of the book really kind of gives away who it's written to, to an extent, but it goes a little deeper. It's not just written to Hebrews or to Jews. It's written primarily to Jews who have left Judaism for the new covenant, Jesus. They've made Jesus Lord of their life. Now, I could kind of preach for about 30 minutes on the problem with that for them, but uh, they didn't just get saved and join a Baptist church and hang out in the air condition like us and hear good music. They were persecuted. At least, at minimal, they were harassed regularly. Um, Judaism was an okay religion by the Roman Empire. They had endorsed it. They allowed it. Christianity, they had not. And for Christians, uh, it was not comfortable being in Rome at that time. With that said, there are many Jewish Christians. Everybody all right with that term? Jewish Christians? Completed Jews, Messianic Jews today. By the way, I believe everyone must come to Jesus for salvation. So these Jews had converted to Christianity following Christ. They're under pressure, persecution, harassment, and many of them are being tempted to fall away from the faith, to return back to Judaism. Now, I, I have an analogy of something that's happening today in the church, but I'm not gonna try to make that comparison because I might scare some people. But there are many professing Christians who are being tempted to fall back into the old ways. I believe there are some denominations um, 
who I fear are being put in a bad situation because of the, the liberality of their denomination and they're having to make some, let's just call them out, the Methodists are in a tough spot because um, they're split. And basically there's an extremely liberal, anti-Bible portion who want to do things that God is not pleased with. And then there's some that are conservative evangelicals who are having to make a tough decision. And I believe, this is my take on it, that many of them are gonna be tempted to at least in appearance be in line with the liberal Methodist church so that they keep their property and they keep their church. But yet try to be conservative and it's gonna be a problem. None of us are gonna be affected by that, right? So you, that just wasted your time, so I'm sorry. But I believe there are many Christians today who are being tempted to go back to their old life. Now, this is theology, so everybody relax. I don't believe anybody who's ever been born again gets unborn again. But I believe as the day approaches, which is in this text, there will be many who fall away from their faith. They were professors, but not possessors. They were not truly born again. Church, adults, teenagers, children that can hear me. If someone falls away from the faith, according to scripture, they never were born again. We have security in Christ. And now I'm starting to preach, so let's stand as we honor God's word. If you're new here, we do that out of respect for God's word as the ultimate authority in our life. Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 25. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he, Jesus, has consecrated, made, inaugurated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, his body, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Oh my not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, the second coming, approaching. Father, thank you for your word. We don't say that lightly. We are grateful that everyone in this room has access to a copy of your word and a language they can read. We believe it's absolute truth. By faith, we trust in it. Teach us today from your word. Don't let our thoughts interfere with your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The message today is exhortations for the faithful. Over the last couple months now, as you've maybe realized, 
not intentionally, the sermons have been around the faith or the faith life. I use this title intentionally to kind of continue this thought of the life of a believer, our faith life. We, we live by faith, not by sight. Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God in the next chapter. It tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We, do, we must walk by faith, believer, and not by sight. We must lean on his word and his understanding and not our own. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. When you trust and confidently have faith in his word, it changes your perspective in life. This book is, as I said, written to this Jewish Christian audience. There are others potentially receiving this letter who are Gentiles, uh, Gentile Christians, and quite honestly, they have continued to receive this letter up until the year 2023. And all scripture is good. It's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in all righteousness. So I have to cover that real quick to say, well, why, why are we studying it if it's to somebody else? No, it's to us. It's practical applications are to us today because all of God's word is inspired and good for us. It provides instruction. It provides doctrine. It tells us when we're wrong. And sometimes it cuts like a two-edged sword. In this text, the writer, whoever he is, emphasizes oftentimes the superiority of Jesus. I know Pastor Justin, I think one of the first series he ever did here was Hebrews. I think it might be his favorite book. I think he's been in Hebrews for about four years now. By the way, four-year anniversary, what, two weeks ago, something like that? Four years? When? A month ago. Well, that was, what's today? Uh, two and a half weeks ago. Okay, anyway. Um, still here. He's, he has outdone the average, and I have far exceeded the average. So uh, we're either on our way out or we're doing good. I don't know. He's writing, and he, to this audience who very well knows Judaism, the sacrificial system, the high priest going into the Holy of Holies. By the way, this saves about an hour of preaching if we know that there are 18 verses before verse 19 picks up in Hebrews chapter 10. Everybody say amen if you know that, and we'll get out a little bit earlier. Not earlier than normal, but earlier than we could have. He, he reminds them, he goes through the sacrificial system in verses one through 18, that the high priest would go into the holy of holies uh, after sacrificing the lamb, and he would take the blood in, and only the high priest could go through that veil, through that curtain, into the presence of God. This is important. If you get this part, the rest of it's downhill from here. So they understand this terminology. And, and in this text, he says, now Jesus is the high priest. This is a new way. This is a new way of thinking. <clears throat> it's a new path. He's writing to this audience and in verses nine through 10 of the same chapter, he said, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second by the which will be 
uh, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. So sometimes, in the, at least in a conservative Baptist church, we say a new way, everybody gets a little, whoa, whoa. We're going to do something new today. Oh, I wish I wouldn't have come today. And so this writer, Jesus comes on the scene here and, and provides a new way. Paul, by the way, we've talked about this in Romans on Wednesday night, uh, the letters, and the, the Pauline epistles. Paul had a struggle with these folks that didn't quite understand the new way. And uh, that's most of what we see in Paul's writings. There are 29 direct quotes and 53 clear allusions to the Old Testament in this passage that would get the attention of those former practicing Jews. He provides encouragement. He provides comfort and warning to these believers. That's where I get this idea of exhortations of the faithful. But what's interesting, and, and I, need, I need some prayer and supplication right now because I didn't want the first part to be this lengthy, but it's interesting, and I think I know why, that the writer wanted to, before he exhorts the church, exhorts the believers, encourages the believers, he wants to make clear that they understand how they get to God. And so I want us to first look at the entryway of the faithful before we look at the encouragement or the exhortations to the faithful. In verses 19 and 20, he says, having therefore, brethren, we know there's something before because he says therefore, but he's talking to believers, brethren, since we have the boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has made for us, consecrated through the veil. He wants them to know how you get to God. Because in this new way, you don't get to God in the old way, which is some high priest going in by himself representing you. And he answers the question of how we get to God by basically in verse 19 saying, by the blood of Jesus. So I want us to see that Jesus is how we enter the presence of God. Therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, like as in the holy of holy, the holiest place. By the way, this is really simple. What is the holiest? The better question is, who is the holiest? It's God. God is holy. God is pure. God is righteous. God is sinless, purity, which we have to be reminded, no man, no man is worthy to stand before a holy, righteous God. So how do we get to God? How does a person get to God? He says, since we have this boldness to enter, he's reminding them of chapter four, you don't have to turn there, where he tells us that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. This idea of boldness is not arrogance. This idea of boldness is confidence. We have confidence to enter into the presence of God. The holiest place on all the earth, God's presence, we can have confidence. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They were in the presence of God daily. God walked with them. God showed up every morning for morning coffee. How are y'all doing? Let's talk a while. 
They were perfect. They were God's creation. They were sinless. And God walked with them. He talked with them. And in the day, on the day, they chose to sin, rebel against God. Their relationship was separated. And God comes out and says, where are you? And they were hiding. There's grace in that question, by the way. There's mercy in that question, by the way. Where are you? He came to me. Where are you at? We're over here. Why are you covering yourself up? How did you know you're naked? Because they had sinned, and their fellowship was broken, and they were cast out of the garden. They were separated from God, and from that point on, Romans, Paul tells us that we're all born sinners after the similitude of Adam and Eve. Therefore, we are all separated from a holy, righteous God. So the question of all questions is how can a man, how can a woman get to God? How can we get into the presence of God? How can we enter into the presence of God? And the answer is by the blood of Jesus. He says it there at the end. We understand that the high priest would take this blood into the holy of holies, sprinkle it over the ark of the covenant on the mercy seat. It's really important this by the blood of Jesus. Now, I'm gonna sound like an old grandpa here, but it is true that many churches, professing evangelical churches, don't sing about the blood of Jesus anymore. It's the silliest, wimpiest thing I think I could ever hear to say it's a little too graphic. You can't watch a commercial now that's not more graphic than the blood of Jesus. Not to mention all the games, and see, now I'm a grandpa, and I'm saying, oh, the movies, the games, the commercials, uh, don't tell me. No, it's essential that we talk about, that we celebrate the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If that's true, that's the last thing we should quit talking about. The writer said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. If there's any one essential that we must talk about, it's the blood of Christ. It's this new covenant. It's not the blood of a, a sacrificial lamb, or is it? It's, it's this new covenant, the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Remember what John the Baptist said when Jesus showed up on the, on the scene? Behold the lamb of God, the sacrifice of God that came to take away the sin of the world. It's only by the blood of Jesus that we enter in. This is how we enter. But then he says this, this phrase, by a new and living way. Not only is Jesus how we enter, Jesus is the way we enter. The death of Jesus offered a new, different way to God. What's interesting about this term, the way, is this is, I kind of like it. I don't, I don't know why I've always been kind of attracted to this title, the way. The New Testament church referred to Christianity as the way. In Acts, you don't have to turn there. In Acts, when Saul was persecuting the church, on a couple of occasions, he alludes to this fact when he says, uh, go out and find those, bind those, find and bind those who are of the way. 
Church, it's good to be reminded, uh, we're of the way. The only way. And the way we're going is not the way the rest of the world is going. I don't know if you figured that out, but that sometimes causes a little friction. And when you're going this way, and 10 are coming this way, it's not always pleasant. These people were of this way. So how did this happen? Jesus is the way, but how it happens. And I want us to see this, and I promise I'm gonna speed up as we get to the end because the writer felt that this was super important, and I believe it's very important for us to understand the way we get to Jesus. He says, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. This is how a man gets to God, a person gets to God. He says that Jesus' body was the veil. Now, most of us know that um, the Holy of Holies was separated from, and we'll get into the whole sanctuary or tabernacle here, but was separated from the people or even the high priest by a very thick, um, beautiful, ornate veil. I think it's good to be reminded of how important it was to enter into the Holy of Holies pure. And I say this kind of with an asterisk. As pure as a human could get, because he was still sinful. And there was an elaborate um, recipe for preparing to enter into God's presence. The high priest wasn't just like, hey, look at me, I'm the high priest. I assure you, this day was the most nervous day of his life. He had to do it all the way God said. By the way, that's what's important. He had to do everything and prepare the way God said to prepare. That's what allowed him into the presence of God without dying. Most, and I think there's some historical evidence, say that he would wear bells on his robe so that when he walked, they could they'd know he's alive. And when the bell stopped, they knew to pull him out. This is the holiness of God. The Bible says, Hebrews says, that Jesus' body was the veil. We know in Matthew 27 and the other gospels, when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that the temple veil ripped from top to bottom. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is when Jesus' body was torn on the cross, when he died on the cross, he, by his death, ripped that veil. Opening the access to the holiest of all. The Bible says Jesus, his body, was that veil. The only way then and the only way now to God is through Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one, church, no one comes to the Father. No one enters the holiest except through Jesus. No other religion enters into the presence of God apart from Jesus. 
The question of all questions is what do you say about Jesus? There's a couple religions that are roaming the streets today. And they're knocking on doors and they're bothering people just like they always have. And the question of all questions is, what do you say about Jesus? The question that we all have to answer is, what do we say about Jesus? The writer wanted us to be reminded, or maybe here for the first time, the only way to get to God is through Jesus. This is the entryway. And now he exhorts the church. He exhorts the faithful. But there is a verse that I can't overlook because if I'm going to go verse by verse, I have to look at verse 21. Before we see these three exhortations, if you will, these three encouragements, verse 21, it's almost like it's out of place except if you know the context of the passage and the whole book. He says, and having a high priest over the house of God, and, and I'm going to make this real short and sweet, the point is Jesus is now the high priest. He is the high priest. He is the new and better high priest. And he is the one who is over the house of God. Now we say house of God around here a lot, right? And in, the, in, in this region, in the, in the rusty old Bible belt of America, you know, let's go to the house of the Lord. And, and some people like that and some people cringe about that and whatever. I think we understand what we're saying. Um, we understand that this is not the only house that God dwells in. We also understand that he only dwells there when we show up. Everybody good with that? Because this is the temple of the Holy Spirit for a believer. And when the temple walks in the temple, then Jesus and God, okay, y'all good with that. Everybody look kind of like, whoa, what's he saying there? I'm not offended if you say this, come into the house of the Lord, all right? I think I'm gonna hope you know what you're talking about. But this is not what he's saying. Jesus is the high priest over the house of the Lord, of the house of God, the church of God, the believers. He is the high priest. And the writer wants you to know he's not like that former high priest. He's a little different. We don't have a high priest, he says in Hebrews chapter four, that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was not always tempted yet without sin. That high priest, as high as he was offering the blood, was not without sin. And now Jesus is the high priest without sin. Earlier in this chapter in Hebrews 10, he says, and every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. This is a, a different high priest. This is a better high priest. Unlike the Old Testament high priest who would enter in, offer the sacrifice, they would come back out to the people. This high priest entered in but didn't come back out. But one day, he's gonna come back to the people. This is the high priest over the house of God. And he says in verse 19, having therefore, brethren, believers, wake up, it's almost over. Since we have access to God through Jesus our high priest, over the house of God, we are given 
some exhortations to carry out as the faithful believers. In other words, Jesus died because he died on the cross, creating access to God. And because Jesus is the great high priest over the family of God, then we should do the following. First, draw near to God. Now, if I just came up to a random person and said, hey, let's draw near to God. I'm not talking about a random Baptist church goer, but I think they might struggle with it too. How do we, the question is, well, how do I draw near to God? Now, I, this is a little controversial, not to anybody out here, but to the theologians in the room. There are some who believe uh, this is, uh, I, forget that. Here's what I'm gonna say. I believe this is an encouragement or an invitation to both the lost and the saved. Now, let me back up. This, he said to the brethren and sistren, so we know he's talking to believers. But I think the application is very clear that God wants everyone to draw close to God, to come to him. That's his desire. So it's an invitation to both the sinner and the saint. An invitation to the sinner to draw near to God in salvation and an invitation to the saint to draw near to God in sanctification. Draw near to God. Well, how do I do that? With a true heart in full assurance of faith. It's a good reminder, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith in God's word. I think it's a great place to, to stop and say, our job as a church in the Great Commission is to invite people to draw near to God. And when they say, well, how do I do that? You go to the first 25 minutes of this sermon and you say, only through Jesus. It's the only way. Faith in his word, full assurance, that's confidence. Confidence in what? For the lost person, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I am convinced, and I do it myself, I have done it. I'm the first one to question whether somebody really got saved or not. Now, as a pastor, I think I ought to do my due diligence to ensure that they know what's going on, to, to help them grow, and we do that, we try to do that. Almost to a fault, we try to make sure. I never want anybody, never want anybody to make it a, some type of profession and, and me be responsible for not helping them know what just happened. I think it's one of the detriments to the church. Children getting saved, teenagers getting saved and never discipled and having no idea what they did and 25 years later, say, I don't know, I made some decision. But we can tell people, call on him in confidence. And Paul tells us, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Draw near to God. An invitation for the sinner to salvation and an invitation, maybe more specifically for this text in the context, for a saint, a Christian, to draw near to God in sanctification. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I have to say this in full disclosure, this verse is, a, is an hour sermon, but I'm not gonna do that. Verse 22 represents four prerequisites for entering into the presence of God. It's all in that one verse right there. Sincerity, 
with a true heart. It's a genuine, sincere heart. James tells us to draw nigh to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. If you're a believer, if you're gonna draw near to God, you've gotta come to him with a pure, true, genuine, sincere heart. I, I, I think we miss it a time or two. I don't, I don't mean to be critical with this, but I'm, I'm preaching to myself too. I believe God wants us to be genuine. I, I want us to be genuine as a church. I believe one of the pitfalls or hurdles to a lost world is phony Christians or phony professors. We're talking about sanctification. Salvation, now sanctification, growing in grace and knowledge, being more like Jesus. And he says, come to me with a true, sincere heart. This is gonna be so elementary, but I think we would all do a little better in our Christian walk if we would do what I'm about to say. When we bow our heads to pray, when we're confessing our sins, when we're having a little talk with Jesus, which I'm told will make it right, come to him authentically, genuinely, sincerely. God is not impressed with our flowery, flowery multi-symbolic um, or uh, big words. And, I, and I've done it. It's almost like you come to prayer and God and you're telling him everything, but, and he's like, come on, get to the point. He wants us genuine. He knows us already. And the question is, well, why do we have to pray? Because he wants to know that you know it. He wants you to acknowledge to him your need. Are we too proud as a Christian to ask God for help? When he's a present help in a time of danger, time of trouble, and he says, call on me? Come to him sincerely. Jesus talked about those who were professing and he was pretty rough with them. He, told, he turned around and said, hey, they come to me and their lips act like it and their mouth acts like it, but their heart is far from me. Come to him in sincerity. Come to him in security, in full assurance of faith, confidence. He's already told us, come boldly before the throne of grace. Not on anything we've done, but on everything Jesus did. We, we sometimes are deterred from coming to Jesus because we're afraid we've done something that he won't allow us to him. The only reason we can come to him anyway is because what he did, not because what we did. So we get to come to him, not on our own assurance, but on the assurance of his promises that he says, come to me. Call on me and I'll answer. Come confidently to me. That's security, knowing that we have access to God and he'll hear us. I've, there's a phrase that many times I pray. I find myself praying it. It's not something I script out. I don't know that I've ever written a prayer in my life. I didn't say that was wrong, but I'm just saying I don't think I ever have. 
But I find myself praying and thanking God for the privilege to pray. And I, I think as a pastor, it's an overwhelming responsibility, but yet a, a gift, not just to the pastor, but to the believer, that we have the, the freedom and ability to pray for someone else. That's a little overwhelming. That I can walk in confidently to the holiest of holies and talk to the holy God of the universe for you. The best news is you get to do the same thing. Because I ain't even got time to talk about the priesthood of the believers, but that's in there too. It has nothing to do with the amount of our faith. It has everything to do with the object of our faith. Looking to Jesus, the same writer says in chapter 12, the author and finisher of our faith. This is the confidence. This is the security Number two, the security. Seven minutes. Here we go. And next we see the third prerequisite, salvation. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. This sounds a little weird to Baptists, especially when you say sprinkled. But they understood the terminology. They understood this high priestly, tabernacle, sacrificial. They understood the sprinkling of the blood. And we do if we know God's word, we look and we understand that. So I won't spend a lot of time on that. But they understood that this meant, this was the, the picture of salvation, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Have, uh, in Hebrews chapter nine, the, the previous chapter, he says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered into one, once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth through the purifying of flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ? They understood what this meant. This is salvation. This is the security of our salvation. This is the prerequisite to drawing close to God that we come sincerely, that we come in full confidence and we come to him as a born-again believer, um, confident, assured in our salvation. And then the other prerequisite, verse number four, is sanctification. This is what he asked for, having our bodies washed with pure water. Once again, a symbolic of these priests who washed their hands symbolically in this pure water. But we understand that we are sanctified by the pure water of the word of God. This is how God says, come to me. Sanctify yourself with my word. Just as Ephesians chapter five, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I didn't know that was there. And gave himself for it. And he goes on that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. If we're gonna come into the presence of God, if we're gonna draw near to God as a believer, and these are the things we do, we come truly, sincerely, genuine. We come in confidence. We come in the assurance of our salvation and we sanctify ourselves with the word of God. We grow close to him, draw close to him, become more like him. We are exhorted to draw near to God and we're exhorted here next to hold fast our confession. Verse 23. I love this and I've heard messages preached on this and Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're, they're not good but because they're not contextual. But he says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. This word profession is, is really, and it's much better understood, to be confession. 
hold fast your confession of the faith. Now's a good time for me to go on a tangent, but I won't because of time. But if there's ever been a day where believers need to be holding fast their confession, it's today. It means to hold on to your confession. Now listen, this is the first bold print underlined phrase I've said in 45 minutes. We are not holding on to maintain our salvation, but to manifest our salvation. We don't do anything in our own to hold on to our salvation. But by holding on, here's the word, persevering, we are proving, we are manifesting, we're born again. Some aren't. Let's just be honest. Some of our friends, some of our family, some of our church family, church friends that profess for a long, long time, they're not holding on. Y'all right? I see what time it is. I'm good. I'm following it. That's not something we say, well, amen, brother. They, but no, we're, we, it's to be old me. People who have professed are not holding on. Why is it? It's not because our job is to hold on to our salvation. It's because they never had it. It's not to maintain it, but it's the manifest that we do. If there is any phrase, and I've already said it, and I know some of you are thinking, you've already said that, uh, I'm saying it again. If there's anything that we will see, and I feel strongly about this, in the future, in the church, in this nation, it will be that we are seeing and will see professing believers fall away. Don't don't misread and misunderstand. I'm not talking about lay out of church. We've been seeing that since the church began. I'm talking about apostasy, falling away. Never really had it, never really were. His encouragement, his exhortation is to maintain. Hold on, persevere. And he says, hold on, but he says, hold on without wavering. I'll be honest, I added this five minutes this morning. Because the word wavering, it's not like Paul talked about the wavering like an ocean. It's a different word. He says, hold on or hold fast to your confession without wavering. And this word wavering doesn't mean to to splash around like a wave with the wind pushing you. This, this word wavering means to lean on. Hold fast without leaning on. Without leaning on what? Without leaning on anything other than the word of God. Hold fast your confession without leaning, right? We have too many people leaning on man's wisdom, man's understanding, and not God's word. And when you lean on man's understanding, man's wisdom, your own wisdom, when the, when the fire's turned up, when the pressure's on, 
you'll fall away. This is what we're seeing. And this is what we will see. I wrote a song. I didn't. We've sang it for 150 years. What a blessedness. What a peace is mine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. We've sung these songs for many, many years, and some of us didn't like it. Then we started liking it because we got old and we liked it like old people, and I know how that works. But I think, and I really do this, and I, I'm just being, I'm just mean old man sometimes. I'll be honest with you. I don't think I sinned, but this morning we're singing songs. I mean, the most powerful songs about Jesus and worshiping him and him king. And I, I cringe thinking, and I'm glad I'm on the front and don't have to see how many people are, uh, And they profess to be, and I, I'm with you. I'm not looking because I don't want to see the mean faces. But I was there too probably at one point. We're talking about worshiping the king of kings. And we're supposed to be Christian. We're passing a note. I don't think you do that anymore. Texting a friend. Yawning. Stayed up till three playing Modern Warfare. I don't know if that's still a game. And I think we used to sing songs, and I'm one of them. Think of the words of this song. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I tell you, if you're not leaning on Jesus, you've got a lot to dread and a lot to fear. If we lean on man's understanding, we've got a lot to dread. If I lean on Dean's understanding, I've got a lot to fear and a lot to dread. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms. Why? For he is faithful that promise, is what he says. We're to draw near to God, we're to hold fast our confession, and we're to consider one another. Oh, what does that mean? The word consider here means to, to watch out for. This is, here, here's another 30 minute. That's what we do in the church. We watch out for each other. We look out for each other. One of the roles of a pastor and a pastoral staff is to look out for each other. Not just look out like to see if the enemy's coming to eat the sheep, but to figure out ways to help us. That's what the verse says. To consider one another and to provoke unto love and good works. The word provoke is why I used exhortations in the sermon title. It means to incite. Did y'all get that? To incite. It's a word that we hear a lot in the news and I'm trying to stay on task, so I'm not going to. It means to stir up. It doesn't mean to stir them up emotionally. Although that's fun sometimes. We are to watch out for each other. We're to look out for each other to provoke, to incite, to stir each other up to good works and love. That's what we do. That's what we're supposed to be doing, looking out for each other. It doesn't say to provoke one another. That would be fun to talk about, wouldn't it? Well, I got incited this week <laughs> to do good works for Jesus. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. 
That's what we should be doing. Looking out for each other. What's a way I can help him? What's a way I can help her? What Stir up good works. Good works do matter, by the way. Jesus said, be the light of the world and go do good works. And when you do good works, God, your heavenly father, gets the glory. That's why we do good works. Not for our participation award in heaven one day, but so that God gets glory here on earth. And to love. Is love important? Yes, it must be. Jesus said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples, by your love one for another. So we should go around provoking love. I ought to provoke you to love somebody. You ought to provoke me. I need more help than you do. Provoke me to love somebody. Right? Find ways. Find ways. This is a great example. Um, when, when, the, when the youth went to mountains, Pikeville, that is a way to provoke someone to good works and love. It's not just, you know, Proverbs chapter 12 or 1 Corinthians 3, thou shalt go on mission trips. No, the church provides ways to allow the members of the church, the born-again believers, to incite, to promote, and to provoke love and good works. That's why we do things. Kids camp is a great example. 200 kids here on average, right? What was the purpose of that? Well, to teach them about Jesus but it also gives our people an opportunity to do good works and to promote love, to provoke love. Our job, my job, part of my role is to provide opportunities to provoke, to incite the believers to love and to do good works. We don't just do things around here. Our staff knows this, and if you've been to any, any meeting, we don't do things for the sake of doing things. We don't do it just because we've always done it. We evaluate. Why did we do this? Did it serve a purpose? And most of the time, the purpose is to get someone involved in doing something for God. I just gave away the last point. How do we do all these things? Y'all ready? Y'all amen and act like you're happy and verse 25 will be painless. How do we consider one another? How do we hold fast our confession? How do we incite? By the way, we ought to be encouraging each other to hold fast. Hold on. You can do it. I'm with you. I'm praying. God's praying. We're all in this together. You're not alone. That's what church is supposed to be about, by the way. Not, did you know what she did? You know what's going on in her family? There are too many people who want to know prayer requests so they can talk about it instead of pray about it. I try to do minimal details from the pulpit for a multitude of reasons. And usually, I'm not going to say it. Usually if you ask questions you don't need to know the answer to, I'm going to lie and tell you I don't know. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say something very politically correct so that you don't go out and spout it out to everybody or put it on Facebook. I'm, I'm sounding real mean. None of our people do that. I, none of us do that. It's other churches. We don't do it. So I'm just talking. I've heard other preachers say that's what they do. <laughs> How do we do all this? Verse 25. Verse 25 is in perfect context. God put it there for a reason. 
The RNV says, go to church. Y'all know what the RNV is, right? It's the redneck version, right? <laughs> Not, here's how we do this. Church, I want you to listen. I know what time it is and I'm ready to shut down. This is how we do this. We forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. That is talking about going to church. It's talking about corporate worship. This is the verse, one of many. But since the beginning of the church in Acts, they were meeting corporately to worship. Not in a great facility like this with sound equipment and but they met corporately and worshiped. And you know what they did? One of the purposes were these three admonitions to provoke one another to do good works and to love, to encourage one another, to hold on. They, they had to do that. Their lives were threatened. They had people trying to quit. And they would get together and say, hey, don't quit. Amen. We're in this together. Let's pray about this. Let's pray for each other. That God would strengthen them to not give up, to not quit, to persevere. They drew near to God together. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. This is old as the hills, as some do. It always has been and always will be some forsaking. Now, some of you are intrigued as to what I might say next, but I'm going to not say a lot of things. We ought to go to church. Christians ought to go to church. You know, the old saying is, we don't have to be, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. A wise man once told me, but you have to go to church to be a good Christian. You need to go to church. We need each other. We need the fellowship. Verse 25 has an eschatological urgency to it. Don't miss it. And more and more as the day approaches. I know what that sounds like. So today we're going to have a 3 o'clock service and a 6 o'clock service. No, just, no. No, we corporately meet together as born-again Christians more and more as the day approaches. You answer this question correct, we'll go home. Is he approaching? Is the day approaching? Absolutely. If there's ever been a time to not get slack on corporate worship, it's today. By the way, just for these theologians, this doesn't just mean Sunday morning at 1030. This means small groups. It means Sunday school. It means somebody's house on Thursday night. It means corporately getting together to worship more and more as the day approaches. And this is going to sound old-fashioned, but wouldn't it be super cool for Jesus to come back while you're corporately worshiping together, Amen. doing what he said to do? Maybe at a Bible study, talking about Jesus. It's what he wants. It's what he desires. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for the Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.